This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Global Rescue, the ABA's official emergency medical and evacuation provider. Global Rescue is a worldwide leader in field rescue, medical evacuation, and security extraction services for more than a decade, and their industry-leading network of personnel and resources are on call to provide assistance or evacuation from nearly anywhere on Earth. When ABA members purchase a Global Rescue membership through the association, a portion of the proceeds will go to helping ABA programs and conservation. For more information, go to www.globalrescue.com slash partners slash ABA. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick, and it is award season, not just sort of in the wider entertainment world where it seems like there are award shows on every week these days, but here at the ABA too. Um, but we'll start with sort of that outside non-birding world. If you watched the Oscars last week, you may have seen a short called Piper win the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film. It's a, it's a cute little film featuring a flock of animated sanderlings. Uh, it originally ran at the beginning of the Pixar film Finding Dory, I Have Kids. That's, that's where I first saw it. And while it's not completely ornithologically accurate with regard to where Sanderlings breed and what they look like when they do that. But it's not worth being too pedantic about that. The animation is is really well done. It's amazing what they can do these days, rendering feathers. Uh, it's available online now. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You should check it out. Uh, a lot of birders were sort of excited to see a, a film that featured birds so prominently win a big award like that. It was, it was kind of neat. We also have some American Birding Association awards that we've announced in the last week or so. If you're not familiar with our awards, we do a couple different things. Uh, the first is our Young Birder of the Year competition. This is a year-long contest where young birders from the U.S. and Canada participate in a number of birding-related activities. Uh, they submit those to us. They're judged by expert birders, artists, etc. We we talked a little about that with Sophie Webb in an earlier podcast. If you remember that, if you want to go back and listen to that again, uh, you hear her talk about the sort of uh, criteria she looks for when birders submit the, the their art to the Young Bird of the Year contest. The 2016 competition is over, and we have announced the winners in our two age categories. In the 14 to 18 year category, the winner was Johanna Beam from Lyons, Colorado. And in the 11 to 13 age group, we had two winners. They were Bailey Icorn from Lexington, South Carolina, and Cayenne Sweeney from Camarillo, California. Congratulations to those young birders. You can get more information about them on the ABA blog and on the IRI, which is the Young Birder Run blog that we have at the ABA as well. We're also really proud to announce the recipients of the ABA awards for 2017. Uh, we have a number of awards that we'd like to give to recognize the contributions of dedicated individuals to the cause of birds and birding. We have three recipients this year. Jerry Ligori of Salt Lake City, Utah, is the recipient of the Robert Ridgway Award for Publications in Field Ornithology. Jerry is one of North America's, probably the world's, experts on raptors and raptor identification. He's written two books and co-authored the Crossley Hawk Guide. Those books he wrote, Hawks at Every Angle and Hawks at a Distance, are truly excellent looks at these birds from a really unique and useful perspective, so well-deserved there. Judy Pollack of Evanston, Illinois, is the recipient of the Betty Peterson Award for Conservation and Community for the entire body of her efforts in the city to promote Chicago's forest preserves and expand that network with community support from a really diverse group of people and organizations. The individual things she's done have, have really run the gamut from promoting rare birds to establishing wildlife-friendly areas and urban settings to light reduction programs during migration that have been adopted by the city of Chicago. Really amazing work. 
And Scott Widensall, researcher, author, bird advocate extraordinaire, is the recipient of the Roger Tory Peterson Award for promoting the cause of birding, which is our most prestigious award and well-deserved there. If you've ever read one of Scott's many books or listened to him speak or followed him on his work with owls, most recently with the excellent project Snowstorm, which tags snowy owls with GPS transmitters and has really discovered some really cool things about the movements of these birds, you know what a giant in the bird world Scott is. So we will we'll try to have a few of these folks on this podcast in the coming year. It would be nice to keep a spotlight on the great work that they're doing and to introduce these people to the, the ABA community if you don't already know them. Congratulations to everybody. In this episode of the American Birding Podcast, our technical director, John Lowry, and President Jeff Gordon talk about a new product from Swarovski that is really unique. But first, Israeli birder Jonathan Mayrab joins me to talk about Champions of the Flyway, the big bird race for conservation that will be held in southern Israel later this month. I think you'll enjoy that. But first, here is the scoop on rare birds in the ABA area. This is your rare bird alert for the last week of February and the first week of March. We're still in that early spring lull in North America, and new rarities have been scarce. Well, scarce than normal, they are rarities after all. Uh, there are a number of continuing birds worth noting, like the black-backed oriole in Pennsylvania, uh, the red wing in British Columbia, and golden-crowned warbler in Texas. This period was very good for common gulls in the northeast. This is the European subspecies of our western breeding mew gull. Despite the fact that most gull aficionados do make the distinction between mew and common gulls when they see them, few taxonomic authorities consider them to be full species in their own rights. Even the, the BOU, the British Ornithological Union, and the IOC, the International Ornithological Congress, uh, both tend to be somewhat more liberal about these sorts of things, uh, do consider them to be one species. In any case, it's worth noting when they show up, and we had birds this week in Nova Scotia, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. Uh, the last one was that state's second record. There were a couple first records worth mentioning here uh, in the last couple weeks. The first, uh, Clark's Grebe in Oswego County, New York, represent a first record for that state. Clark's Grebe is far less common than its close relative Western Grebe in the east. Uh, Western Grebe typically shows up a couple times every year somewhere in the eastern half of the continent. Clark's Grebe really only once every few years. And in West Virginia, a cinnamon teal was discovered in Mason County. This is a potential first there. West Virginia is kind of an odd state in the east. It's, it's smack in the middle of the Appalachians, so it's, it's mostly mountainous. It doesn't have a coastline. doesn't have many large reservoirs. So there's large concentrations of waterfowl where cinnamon teal might be found and are typically found when they show up in the east are rather unusual there. But West Virginia does have a record of Great Knot, an Asian shorebird, which has to go down as one of the craziest single records in AVA area history. Uh, so go figure, anything can turn up just about anywhere. This is only a small part of the rarity landscape for the period. For more information, check out the Rare Bird Alert post every Friday at the ABA blog. That's blog.aba.org. And for the latest reports of rare birds in the ABA area, go to the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. Birders in North America may or may not be aware of the continuing issue of bird trapping around the Mediterranean. Every year, an estimated 30 million migratory birds are killed in places like Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, and other places in the region. In an attempt to raise awareness and money to stop this staggering annual loss, Jonathan Mayrav, tourism director of the Israel Ornithological Center, created the Champions of the Flyway, an international birding big day competition now in its fourth year. He's here with me now to talk about it. Jonathan, thanks for joining me. 
My pleasure, man. Uh, this bird trapping issue is one that is, I think, more or less invisible to a lot of North American birders. What do we in the U.S. and Canada need to know about it? So just like you mentioned, it's quite a problem. And uh, it's actually, if you look at statistics, it's the number one threat uh, that migrants uh, face these days. In us in the old world, uh, we have a massive migration corridor where birds that breed in the Eurasian landmass in Europe and Asia uh, migrate south to winter in Africa every year and return in the spring to breed in the, in the Eurasian landmass. And these birds pass through the Mediterranean region, uh, many passing over Israel and the East Mediterranean area because uh, Israel is basically the land bridge that connects the three continents. Mm-hmm. And around Israel, Israel is a safe place for birds. I mean, there is no hunting of birds in Israel, legal or illegal. Mm. But the countries around us in the Mediterranean basin, trapping, killing, and the hunting of birds uh, is very widespread. Uh, like you mentioned, the, uh, the estimate is somewhere between 25 and 35 million migrants uh, mm. that are killed illegally every year. Yeah, that's an incredible scale. <laughs> yeah, and uh, sadly, this involves species, iconic species, things like turtle dove, uh, which I like to call is the modern-day passenger pigeon because it's a bird that used to be very, very common and uh, is being slaughtered in great numbers on migration. And now, you know, very few return to the breeding grounds in Europe. And uh, if we don't do something fast, then turtle dove will disappear. What is the... Um the way that they, they go after these birds. It's not just hunters, it's, it's other things that they're trapping these birds for as well. Exactly. Um, there was a study that was initiated by BirdLife International, which are, by the way, partners uh, mm-hmm. in Champions of the Flyway. We initiated them. We initiated the project together with them. This study shows, and they sampled countries in the Mediterranean basin and some countries in the Middle East, but not all. And uh, it's very diverse. I mean, mm-hmm. in different places, birds are killed for different reasons. In some places, it's for the pot, uh, for food. Uh, less and less so, I must say. You know, today's day and age, uh, people don't really need to blow birds out of the sky in order to get food <laughs> in most places. But uh, it's a wide range of other reasons. There's culture. In some places, uh, shooting birds is a hobby, just like mm-hmm. me and you uh, ride our bikes with our children. Uh, then people take their kids out, give them a shotgun, and every time uh, a flock of storks passes over, it's, uh, <laughs> it's let's blow them out of the sky. Um, in other places, uh, there's a cage bird trade in which birds are trapped in order to be caged, and you know there's a market for this. One of the biggest issues, uh, which is one that people in the EU uh, either don't know or prefer to you know to turn a blind eye to, is the fact that. In many places in North Africa, in Egypt specifically, and other countries around, which are massive stopover sites for these birds as they move mm-hmm. north, they've just crossed the Sahara and they pass over uh, Egypt, and they're trapped in large numbers. There's mist nets there that can be seen from space. Mm-hmm. In some places, the length of the mist nets is uh, 10 miles from one mm-hmm. side to the other. And uh, these mist nets naturally catch everything. Right. These birds, some are eaten, but a large number are packed into bags and are sold by the pound to EU countries such as France and Italy, where they still eat these birds, finger food, either pickled or fried. 
in other places like Cyprus, there's a famous local dish, which is called ambelopulia, which involves six to 12 small songbirds on a skewer, <laughs> uh, which are served with okra. And it's really, it's a tradition. It's important to stress that in many of these places, uh, these people aren't bad people, you know, or, or bloodthirsty. It's really just a matter of tradition, and they right. don't know it. And so this sort of raising awareness thing led to this Champions of the Flyway project competition that you set up. Yes, and uh, that's one of the main goals. I mean, mm-hmm. every the model is simple. Every year we sit with BirdLife in the summer, and we look at the map of uh, these uh, black zones, if you may, these places where large numbers are being killed. Mm-hmm. And uh, we choose a recipient. The race is held in Israel, but the money that is raised goes to a specific BirdLife partner in the region. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, this year we're going to work with Turkey. Uh, we can get back to that later, but the idea is not only to raise money for the chosen bird life partner so they can take this money and implement it into action on the ground. Mm-hmm. The idea is also to point a spotlight at this specific place and the reasons why these birds are being killed there. And the more people know about it, you know, the more, the better results we can achieve. Right. Moving on to the the competition itself, what is it about Israel in March that makes it so great for this sort of competition? Late March in Eilat, in southern Israel, is uh, probably the best time anywhere in the world uh, to witness migration. Uh, The birds that winter in Africa start moving north, and they funnel through, like I said, they've just passed the Sahara, they follow the Rift Valley moving north, and they funnel into Eilat in southern Israel in huge numbers. Uh, even birds that migrated south from the western corridor, what we say that through Gibraltar and the western side of the Mediterranean, do this sort of reverse migration and move up north uh, through southern Israel. So Eilat in late March in southern Israel is basically the best uh, showcase for the flyway, for this massive migration. And what kind of birds are you seeing regularly? It's massive movement of birds of prey, massive movement of songbirds, uh, water birds. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of everything. Many species of soaring birds, uh, birds of prey, storks, cranes, pelicans, all funnel through uh, more or less at the same time. So, I mean, any hawk watch in southern Israel is super impressive uh, during this time. Yeah. So what kind of successes have you seen um, beyond either as a, you know, an increased awareness of this, this bird trapping issue or sort of practical solutions on the ground in the countries that you've worked with? Well, we started in uh, 2014, the first project. We worked with uh, BirdLife uh, Georgia, focusing on the Batumi uh, bottleneck area. Uh, the Batumi bottleneck area in Georgia is, again, a uh, a very thin strip between the Black Sea and the Caucasus Mm -hmm. in which large numbers of birds of prey pass. Uh, Large chunks of the world population of honey buzzard and other species, harriers, uh, move through that area. And sadly, hunting, illegal hunting, is very, very widespread. Actually, the hawk watch there, you're standing on a hawk watch platform and a couple of ledges below you on the same mountain, there's people blowing raptors out of the sky. (laughs) Uh, I visited there and it's quite shocking to see. So we teamed up uh, with the people from Batumi uh, in order to try and uh, they were the first recipient to try and raise money and awareness. And ever since, they've come quite a long way. I mean, they took these funds, they implemented it into uh, educational work with children uh, within the communities there. Some hunters, ex-hunters now, 
uh, are leading birding tours there. <laughs> they understand the economic value. Of course, it's, it's, there's still so much to be done because these traditions, you know, take time. But once it, it starts with a few people, you know, that see the potential and understand that it's much better to use. Because, you know, most hunters, legal or illegal, are very strong uh, field people. You know, right. they have very good field skills. I always like to say that there is no difference between what we do, you know, birding and hunting, because uh, it's only the final outcome. Right, you know? exactly. You need to stalk the birds, you need to know them, you need to know the cycle. Uh, it's just the final outcome. You know, I shoot, you shoot with a camera, and uh, they shoot with a gun. Mm-hmm. So if they can take these skills and, uh, you know, implement them into leading a birding tour group, that's what should happen. And in places uh, in Batumi where we worked, there's now hunters that are contesting their fellow hunters within the villages and hmm. yelling at them, don't shoot at my birds because I have a group which I need to show them the birds. Hmm. That's great. Uh, that, that's where it starts. Yeah, definitely get that local buy-in. Yep. Yeah, that's that's kind of the base of a lot of really effective conservation projects. So uh, the, the, the competition, it's a, it's a 24-hour competition. What are sort of the strategies that a team that is taking part in the champions would need you know, to be up among the top teams that are participating? Well, I'll go back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of a bird race, to do a bird race in Eilat, was rolling around in our heads for, I'd say, nearly 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really, things fell into place when I visited uh, the World Series of Birding, you know, Cape May Bird Observatory right. in, in 2013. I was invited to take part in, a, in the big day uh, with the board of directors uh, team, uh, which was not super competitive and quite relaxed. But that's where I really understood the potential, A, for fundraising, and B, a little bit of the mechanism that I needed to write down uh, the laws uh, for our race. And then we said, you know, they, they managed to raise significant amount of money every year. Uh, the thing is that the money goes in various different directions. And we said, why don't we convince people to come and do a bird race in an awesome place mm-hmm. and, and enjoy, you know, an incredible big day. And then, uh, but all the little fundraise towards one cause. And that's where it started. We chose our playing field is quite a challenging one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it includes a lot in the south. Uh, but goes up uh, east and west all the way to the Negev uh, and the Southern Dead Sea. So it's quite a large area with very good, very good uh, sites in the Eilat area, in the extreme south, and in the north, in the Negev, some very good areas, but in the middle, a huge chunk of desert. <laughs> so strategy is super important. I mean, you need those desert species, but you also need to hit those desert sites at the right time of day. Otherwise, so it's been named, uh, not by me, but it's been called the Dakar uh, of bird <laughs> races, uh, which, uh, which I find very, very accurate. Yeah, the car race, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you really need to know how to negotiate that desert in the middle mm-hmm. uh, to come up with a good score. That's really interesting. Yeah, and in this part of the world, I mean, there are bird races, but it's you know near, not nearly as popular or as big as in the U.S., mm-hmm. And uh, so it was quite a challenging thing to implement this year. And we see how the lists go up every year. Yeah, how many, how many teams do you have this year? This, this year, we're going to have 18 international teams, wow. plus uh, over 20 Israeli teams. The local, the local aspect of the race is also very cool because we started this off. Uh, again, when I started the race, I approached friends from the birding community around the world and invited them to take part in the Champions of the Flyway. And 
the first question that they asked, uh, are you going to compete <laughs> or are your are the top Israeli birders going to compete? Because right. if they are, we're not coming. Yeah, Israeli, Israel has a, a really, you know, robust birding community. Small and strong. Yeah. And uh, we decided, and then that's what led me to think, okay, you know, if they don't want to play, then we'll do a local race alongside. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the way it is until now. We have the international race, and then there's a local Israeli race, parallel, same time, more or less same rules, uh, but there's a separate trophy for the international teams uh, and the local teams. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also raise money for a local cause as well. Every year we choose a different cause. This year we're going to raise money for a sort of SWAT team uh, that will save black storks and other birds that get uh, tangled in fish ponds oh. and the nets and stuff like right, that. That's great. So, so beyond the, the big issue of the illegal killing of birds uh, in Turkey, uh, we also raise for a local conservation cause. And it's really caught on beautifully with the burning community in Israel. I mean, almost everyone plays. Mm-hmm. Fifty percent of the participants are women and children, which are really cool. Yeah. Uh, we got like seven youth teams, oh, which really are pure cool. youth teams. And they really push hard, but it's really brought a value to the local community. They understand, you know, that these birds that they're watching, you know, need the protection. Mm-hmm. So we're really proud about that local aspect as well. Um, one of the things that I find, you know, most interesting about the champions competition is the diversity among teams, not just internationally, but also sort of regionally. Uh, there's a there's a Palestinian and Israeli combined team, which I think is really neat. Um, do you think that birding, bird science, uh, all that stuff is a way to build bridges locally in a way that is often difficult to do politically? Definitely. There's the famous saying that birds know no boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, when a bird is flying over Israel or Palestine, you know, it's very hard for it to see the line, mm-hmm. to see the border. I got to tell you that on the ground, there's a lot of stuff being done with the Pal- Palestine Wildlife Society mm-hmm. and with our neighbors in Jordan and Egypt. Uh, there's a lot of stuff, you know, the little people, uh, so to speak, uh, get things done. You know, uh, even if there's uh, quarrels, you know, at higher levels and big issues and, and so on. Uh, we definitely uh, work together because, you know, birds need safe passage. Right. And uh, Champions is a great example. Uh, going back to this year, I mean, Turkey, we had a few candidates for the 2017 recipient uh, of the Champions of the Flyway. And when we heard the Turkey applied, we were very excited. It's very cool to work with a Muslim country uh, to protect birds. It's not a given uh, this day age. And uh, definitely, I, I feel that it's, it's a way to, to, you know, people get together through birds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's the essence. So if our listeners want to help out, what can they do? The race is uh, going to be on March 28th. The teams, if you go to www.championsoftheflyway.com mm-hmm. and you hit the tab 2017 teams, then you will get a nice list with icons of each and every team. Click on your favorite team. And then you'll find a donate button. This donate button, that's how we fundraise for the project. You're not fundraising for the team, but you're donating on behalf of the team to the main conservation cause. Uh, we don't have many, you know, large donors or car- corporate sponsors. Uh, this project raises funds, you know, by small donations and spreading the word. If you have mm-hmm. 10 bucks, 20 bucks to spare, the real cool thing about this is that instead of getting two large donations of twenty thousand dollars, 
I'd rather have, you know, 400 donations or 500 donations because every person that donates uh, gets this personal connection. Mm -hmm. We have a U.S. team uh, from Cape May. Uh, there's a very strong connection uh, supported by Leica, the American mm -hmm. Dippers. Uh, they can use your support uh, or you can choose any other team. Like you said, the Palestine Sunbirders, uh, a joint Israeli-Palestinian team. Uh, you can donate directly to Doga Derniegi, the Turkish team. There's no shortage of options, and every dollar counts. A hundred percent of these of this money uh, will go to direct conservation action on the ground in Turkey. That's great. And that that um, team from Cape May is uh, David Lapuma and uh, Jen Brumfeld, friends, ABA friends. And besides this, I really want to thank the ABA and Jeffrey Gordon in particular, which has been a really good supporter of the project from the beginning. It's fantastic birding, and it's all for a very good cause. So Absolutely. Well, thanks, uh, Jonathan. The Champions of the Flyway race goes on later this month. Uh, you can find more information at championsoftheflyway.com. Thanks again for uh, joining me, Jonathan. It's my pleasure. Swarovski Optic is well-known for their innovative products, and they have a new one, a spotting scope module that launched just last week that is a bit of a departure from what we think of when we think of spotting scopes. ABA President Jeff Gordon was recently at Swaro Central, uh, their headquarters in Austria, where he got a sneak peek at it. John Lowry, our sales and marketing manager and technical producer of the American Birding Podcast, makes his pod debut to talk with him about it. Guys at Swarovski got to be pretty happy with all the press they got. They, uh, they made a pretty big splash with this new product. Well, yeah, Swarovski and some of their esteemed competitors, you know, they've they've hit on a good system with some of these product launches where they'll uh, invite a bunch of people to uh, you know, some cool destination. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, a number of us early in February uh, were invited to come on Swarovski's dime, I should mention, to Swarovski Optic Headquarters, which is near Innsbruck in Austria in the uh, the state of Tyrol in the Alps, and uh, and see this new BTX, and the BTX is a is a binocular module that attaches to Swarovski's line of modular spotting scopes, the the ATX STX line. So um, it's not it's not a brand new thing, but boy, it's a very new uh, piece of equipment that that literally bayonets on to. Uh, Swarovski's premium line of scopes. Kind of sent us a sneak preview back with the strict instructions that it was not to be spoken of. And my first reaction was, uh-oh, did they jump the shark here? This thing looks a little odd. And it does. It is strange looking, but it seems like it seems like maybe they they they've got something here. Yeah, it's uh, I, I did a little post for the ABA blog and I said it's kind of like a double yoked egg. I mean, you look at this thing and you're like, um, wow, you know, that is it's such a divergent take on on something that we're so used to. Your first thought is, is this is this thing going to get off the ground? The competition is so stiff. You can get such great value at every price point nowadays. So to take a big chance on a high-end product, uh, it's cool. We're, we're the beneficiaries, all birders are, of all this great technology. And so I, I can't wait to try it. You've actually tried it. What was it like? 
I'll agree with you that we're we're living in a golden age of uh, of birding equipment. Uh, come a long way since the the days when we were always using binoculars or scopes that were designed for some other group of users. Um, yet when you when you look through the BTX for the first time, um, having both eyes open is so novel and yet feels so natural. I think because we all you know, those of us that, that use spotting scopes, um, we're just used to automatically either squinting or I guess some folks leave the, the eye that's not looking through the scope open and are just able to filter out all that visual stimuli. But, but either way, you're either uh, squinching up your face muscles or, um, you know, you're, that, that eye, that unused eye is actually getting in the way. And the BTX lets... Uh, the other eye come to the party and and really participate and that is an amazing thing i'm one of those that tries to keep the left eye open and i use my right eye and it's it's uncomfortable after a couple hours to say the least comfort seems like a great advantage with this thing especially that headrest which i'm sure you'll talk about in a second but uh the optics seem quite different yeah the the ergonomics of it are are really extraordinary. I had noticed that uh, that I and a number of other folks who were at the preview, we all kind of fell in love with that head headrest. It um, it's really comfortable, and uh, you know makes you want to look through the scope for extended periods, uh, which is a a great thing. You know, as far as uh, what's going on with having that second eye open and thus, you know, you have another retina and another optic nerve all being stimulated by this this magnified image of whatever bird or birds you're looking at. Um, I guess, you know, people disagree and there's been research done on, um, you know, what benefits that gives you. You know, sort of setting that aside, I can I can definitely say that the image appears more three dimensional. I, I think one of the things Dale Forbes from Swarovski said was, you know, you feel yourself almost falling into the image in a, in a really pleasant way. And I uh, I think it's more than just power of suggestion or hype. I mean, I think you really. Um, perceive more contrast, more detail, uh, more dimension when you've, when you got both eyes working. I, it's pretty obvious. It's not going to be the product for every single birder or even every single scope user. Um, well, for a couple reasons, one, it's fairly expensive, but two, it's, it scopes are already heavy and this is a little bit heavier yet. You know, uh, you and I have talked about this, um, in other conversations, uh, I think what Swarovski's kind of doing here is they're, in a way, starting an ecosystem like a, a Canon or a Nikon um, camera system, where you have these different components that you can customize. And you know, the BTX, you might draw an analogy to uh, a five or six hundred millimeter telephoto lens or a fisheye or something. It's uh, it's a more specialized tool. It's not that. Uh, all-purpose travel zoom that you're going to reach for first. But, uh, boy, when you have a job for it to do, um, nothing else is going to be able to touch it. Probably my first chance to look through this will be in May at the biggest week, I'm guessing. Um, 
and you and I will both be there. And Clay Taylor, I'm sure, will be there with it, probably focused on a screech owl, if I'm guessing correctly. So, uh, wow, you have <laughs> you have detailed precognition. Um, no, I think I think that's a very good guess. Um, I know they're uh, planning to have this thing available for sale in May, and so we should. I hope uh, people get the opportunity to look through it at uh, at the biggest week and some of the other spring into summer and fall birding events. I'm really, really curious how the community is going to, you know, adopt this new bit of technology into its repertoire. Um, really cool stuff. And, um, you know, hats off for Swarovski. Hats off to Swarovski for, uh, for making this happen. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this or any of the free resources the ABA provides, please join the 13,000 birders who are members. We would love to have you. Not only are you helping to make this podcast possible, but you get a great bi-monthly magazine in birding, discounts on books from our partners at Beauty of Books, and the opportunity to participate in events around the world. But you also have the knowledge that you are helping to promote birding in Canada, the United States, and beyond. Get more information at aba.org slash join. President of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. John's band, The Hangabouts, does the music. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter where we are at ABA. Not to be confused with the Swedish pop group. Yeah, we had someone call the office last month asking when their next album is coming out. Questions or comments can be directed to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.